Well, let me see a show of hands. How many of you have played hide-and-go-seek with a kid before? Okay, okay, lots of us, almost all of us. Okay, so then, then you know, like, you get, your, your kids get better. Kids get better at hide-and-seek as they get older, right? I mean, when, when I play hide-and-go-seek with my six-year-old daughter, Nixon, okay, oftentimes she'll be hiding under a blanket, you know, or in our bed with a comforter or a sheet over or whatever, and she'll have her little feet sticking out the back, and she's giggling, and she's thinking she's hiding, right? But, but you can hear her, you can see her, because oftentimes her feet are hanging out the back or her arms or hands are hanging out and she's she's laughing and the whole bed or the whole blanket or whatever it is that she's under is like moving around and and shifting so she doesn't quite understand like to play hide and go seek like you have to hide your like total body and be quiet and silent and, you know like this but my son Coben, on the other hand, is very good at hide-and-go-seek. In fact, it was probably three to six months ago or so, we were playing hide-and-go-seek in our house, and I'm looking for him, and then I'm looking for him and looking for him, and man, 30 minutes later, I feel like we were trying to leave the house. We're getting ready to go. It's like, Coben, you got to come out. Come out, come out, wherever you are, because we're leaving. Like, we got to go. And then he popped up out of our washing machine. Somehow, even at his size, he had gotten into our washing machine. I never would have guessed he would have fit there. But see, we, we get better at hide and seek as we get older, right? Now, when you flip this around, if you're a dad and you play hide and go seek, uh, if you're like me, you, you wait until your kids are screaming and crying and upset, you know, before you ever come out of your hiding spot. How, how many of y'all do that? Oh, okay, me neither. I just kidding. I don't. I don't really. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't do that. But the first game, the first game of hide and seek we see in Genesis, it's the very first game of hide and seek ever. We actually see a game of hide and seek in the book of Genesis, and it's after this game of hide and seek where we see the very first promise of Christmas. You see, the very first promise of Christmas isn't in the Gospels, and it wasn't even in the prophets hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Christ. The very first promise of Christmas actually comes in the very beginning of time, like in the very beginning of your Bible, like in the book of Genesis. We see the very first promise of Christmas, and this promise of Christmas actually comes after a crisis, like the largest crisis that ever has been between God and man. So if you got a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three, and we're gonna look at the very first promise of Christmas. It begins in this crisis. Now here's what's happened. Let me catch you up. If you weren't here last week, in Genesis 1, God has created everything by the power of his word, everything in existence. That's the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, the, the earth, you and me. God, God has created humanity. He's created it all in Genesis 1 and says it's good. It's, it's very good. But then we get to Genesis 3 and we saw last week, the devil leads this serpent, a snake, to tempt Adam and Eve to eat from this tree that God had said you, you must not eat from or you will die. The wages of sin, as the Bible says, is death. So don't eat from it or you will die. Well, Adam and Eve give in to the rebellion that the snake is tempting them with. And we last week, we saw the, what rebellion is and the nature of rebellion and what it leads us to do and, and the inheritance that you and I have received because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. And if you missed that, you can catch up on our app or, or on our podcast. But that's where we're at now. Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. 
the lie that they believed has resulted in nothing but pain and death and regret. The promise was from the snake, if you listen to me, if you rebel against God, you'll experience the happiness and the freedom and, and the joy that you're longing for. But that rebellion would only prove to be a lie, and we saw that last week because of the curse of sin. But today, I want you to see what happens when Adam and Eve rebel against God and what happens in their world and how this sin, this rebellion separates them from God. So let's go Genesis chapter three. If you got your Bible, uh, open it up. If you're on our app, download our app or open our app, the City Church Lubbock. You can follow along there. The verses are there. Uh, the, the points are there. You can fill in the blank as you go. And here's what's really cool. If you fill in the right answer, you get a green line. And if you fill in the wrong answer, you get a wrong line, red line. And you can just look on your friend's phone and cheat and get the right answer, okay? So here we go, Genesis chapter three. All right, here we go, verses seven through 13. It says, then the eyes of both of them, that's Adam and Eve, were opened and they realized they were naked. And so watch this, here, here's what they did. They sewed some fig leaves together and the scripture says they made coverings for themselves. They wanted to cover themselves in their shame and their nakedness. They wanted to cover themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And Adam answered, I, I heard you in the garden, and watch this. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman, it was the woman that you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And so I ate. You know, shame will make you do some funny things. Shame will cause you to play hide and go seek with God <laughs> like that's possible. See, the scripture tells us that there's nothing that you can do, there's nowhere you can go and hide from God, that God sees all things. In fact, the scripture would say, it's the fool who says, God does not see me. God is not watching. God sees you even when no one else is around. Even when no one's looking, God is looking, God is watching. You can't hide from him, the scripture says. In fact, in the Psalms, we, we read, where, where can I go and flee from your presence? I have nowhere to go where you are not there already. I can't hide from you, but shame will make you do some funny things. Shame will lead you to do things like this. Shame will lead you to cover up. Shame will lead you to try to cover up your sin like on your own. In verse seven, in Genesis chapter three, it says that Adam and Eve made coverings for themselves out of some leaves. They, they were trying to get some leaves together and put them together and to cover themselves because they were ashamed of their sin. You see, shame will always lead to cover up. And we do this in one of two ways. First of all, one way we try to cover up our sin is by denying it. No, 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 I, I didn't do that. Or, or, or we downplay it. No, it's not that big of a deal. It wasn't that big of a deal. And in doing so, we are not taking into account how our sin has hurt and offended a holy God, an infinitely holy God. Who the scripture says hates 
your sin. Loves you, but hates your sin. In fact, he hates it so much. And it was such a huge deal. Your sin was such a huge deal to God that it forever separated you from God. And it was such a huge deal to God that he sent his son to earth to die on a cross to pay the fine for your sin. So don't ever, don't ever tell a, a parent that the death of their child in your place because of your sin made a big to-do about nothing. No, your sin infinitely offends an infinitely holy God, thus the need and requirement for an infinite punishment. Eternity separated from God in a place called hell. No, your sin is a huge deal. How could you possibly look at the cross with the Son of God dying on that cross, paying the fine for your sin? Paying the fine for my sin. How could we look at Jesus dying on a cross and say that my, my sin is not that big of a deal and downplay it? And then we, when we deny and downplay our sin, we, we don't take into account how we've offended and hurt other people and how we've broken relationships as a result of our sin. So that's one way we cover up our sin. The second way that we cover up our sin is by trying to fix it on our own. Did you see in verse 7, it says they were, they were trying to make coverings for themselves. They were trying to fix the problem on their own. They were trying to do better and try harder and perform their way out of shame and perform their way back into this acceptance, this good relationship with God. But that never works. It never works to try to frantically cover yourself with desperate attempts of trying to perform or to be perfect or to be pleasing or to prove yourself, that never works. You can't fix yourself. In fact, the very first step in Alcoholics Anonymous in AA says this, we admit that we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. You can't fix yourself. And the scripture basically says the same thing about our sin. You are powerless to do anything about your sin. You cannot fix it. You can't perform your way out of it. You can't please try to prove or, or please your way out of it. It just doesn't work. And it didn't work for Adam and Eve. And both of these responses, whether that's to deny and downplay or to tr frantically try to fix ourselves, are both responses out of pride. But watch what happens when we try to cover up. Here's what happened to Adam and Eve. When you just cover up your shame, when you cover up your shame, you just stay the same. When you cover up your shame, you, you stay the same and you remain broken and your relationships remain broken. And so oftentimes shame will lead to a cover up. Secondly, shame leads to hiding. Did you notice how Adam and Eve run from God and they hide from God as if it were possible? They want to run and hide in their shame. The second step in AA says this, that we came to be aware that a power greater than ourselves would have to restore us to sanity. And when we run from God in our shame, we are running from the very one, the only one 
who can fix us, who can put our lives back together, who can heal us, who can mend us, and who can heal the divide and the conflict in our relationships as a result of our sin and shame. And the result is the same when we try to hide. When you hide in shame, you stay the same. You remain broken and your relationships remain broken. Third, shame leads to this. Shame leads to blame, to playing the blame game. We talked about this some last week, but when God comes down to the garden and questions Adam and says, well, what, what have you done? What does Adam do? Well, it was, the, it was the woman's fault. And by the way, you put her here with me. Yeah, I was, I was, I was alone and, and I was you know, miserable without her, but, but when you gave her to me, and it's so you and the woman that you put, it's their fault. Well, so God goes to the woman. Why, why have you done this? How could you do this? Well, it was the serpent. It was the serpent's fault. And she blames the snake. And if God had gone to the snake, which the scripture doesn't say this, and say, why have you done this? I'm sure the snake would have said, well, it was the devil's fault. The devil made me do it. See, shame always leads to blame. It always leads to, it's never my fault. It's always someone else's fault because shame funny enough, actually activates our pride. And pride is always defensive and pride always deflects. The problem is, is again, the result remains the same. When you blame, you stay the same. You, you remain broken and your relationships remain broken when you blame, you remain the same. So we're stuck. We're stuck in our shame. We're we're covering it up, we hide it, we, we, we blame other people. So that's what we do. So how does God respond to our shame? Well, let's go back to Genesis three and let's look at what God does and how God responds in this moment, in this crisis to Adam and Eve's shame. All right, let's look. Genesis three, verse eight and nine says this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. And then the Lord called out to them, where are you? So, so watch this, here's how God responds. God comes down. That's how God responds to our shame. He comes down to us. He comes down to our level. He comes straight up to Adam and says, where are you? What, what, are, what are you doing? God comes down to us. You see, here's what religion says. Religion says, you've got to go up to God. You've got to fix yourself and perform your way up to God, thus the Tower of Babel. Let us create this thing that will allow us to get up to God. And Paul actually says in Romans 10, don't say, don't, don't even say this. Don't say who will go up to heaven because that's like saying Christ has come down and he has. So, so don't say who's gonna go up to heaven, who's gonna perform their way up to God, who's gonna do better and try harder and climb that ladder up to God. Don't, don't say that because it's impossible. And that's what every religion on the face of our planet says. How can I get to God? How do I get up to him? How can I perform my way and work my way and try harder and do better to get to God and get to his heaven? That's religion. You see, the scripture says we don't go up to God. God comes down to us. And that's the message of scripture. John chapter one, God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the message of Christmas. 
that God became flesh and made his dwell. He came down to us. He came up to us in our shame and in our sin. And so we see things like Jesus eating with sinners, the son of God, God made flesh, dining and eating with sinners. We see him going up to people like Matthew, an evil, treacherous tax collector in the midst of his sin, walking right up to Matthew and saying, Matthew, follow me. Now, if it's you or me, Matthew, probably, well, well oh, Jesus, if, if, if I'm going to follow you, I got I to gotta fix this and, and do this and, and make this right. I, I, I got, I've got so much to clean up and to fix before I come and follow you. But that's not what Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, hey, Matthew, fix yourself, clean yourself up, do better, try harder, and then maybe I'll come back and ask you to follow me. No, no, no. Jesus comes straight up to Matthew in the midst of his sin and says, now, follow me now. And when you follow me, I will clean you up from the inside out. I will fix your life from the inside out. I'll put things back together. You can't do it, Matthew. So follow me. And that's the message of Christmas, that God comes down. Secondly, watch what happens next in verse 15. And I will put, he's speaking to the snake here, and I will put enmity, the the war, between you, the snake, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Some translations say the, the seed, between your seed and hers. He, the seed of this woman, the offspring of this woman, God says this, will crush your head, will crush the head of the snake. And so here's the second way God responds. God makes a promise. God comes down, then God makes a promise that there's going to be this seed of this woman that will crush the snake, will crush his rebellion, and will crush your shame, Jesus says. God says that this seed, the seed that's to come, the offspring of this woman, will crush the head of the snake. Well, the next time we kind of see this language occur, is in God's promise to Abraham. And then he repeats it to Isaac and Jacob, generations after Abraham. God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, hey, through your seed, I'm gonna bless you and make you famous and your descendants and the generations that are gonna come after you are are gonna be as numerous as the sand on the seashores, the stars in the sky, Abraham. And through your seed, God says in Genesis 12, all the nations, all the families, all the peoples on earth will be blessed, Abraham, through your seed, through your offspring. Well, generations later, Israel's taken into captivity and slavery to Egypt. God sends this man named Moses to come and rescue them and deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh from slavery in Egypt. He delivers them. They're, they're, they're uh, traveling now through the desert and they come to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on it to meet with God. And God tells Moses, hey, this is how uh, this relationship between you and me is going to work and between uh, me and uh, th- this people, Israel. This is how this relationship is going to work. When you sin, because the curse of sin is death, so that my wrath does not burn out against you and consume you and kill you, you will take an animal, a perfect spotless animal, oftentimes a lamb or a bull, a ram, something that would cost you dearly. And you will bring this animal to the priest and the priest will take it. But before they take it and slaughter it, 
so that it dies in your place, you would put your hand on the animal and say, this animal, this lamb, is going to die in my place for my sin. It's dying the death that I owe. God should kill me, but in his grace and mercy, this animal is gonna die in my place as a sacrifice for my sin. And then the priest would take it, its blood would be shed, they would make a sacrifice for the sin. Well, years later, we've got a king named David leading Israel. And God says to David, through your seed, you will never cease to have someone reigning on your throne. This is David like David and Goliath. Through your seed, you will never cease to have someone from your seed, from your offspring, reigning on the throne. Well, we get to the New Testament. The very first book in the New Testament, the very first chapter, the very first verse, you could turn there and look at it. And it's talking about Jesus. And this is Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. You mean Jesus is this seed that's promised to, to the woman that will crush the head of the snake, to Abraham that's gonna bless all nations, to, to David that will never cease to reign on the throne? Yes, this is the, the seed that the entire old covenant and even the sacrificial system itself was pointing to, was pointing to this seed that was to come that would die in our place for our sin. And so Hebrews says, that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he conquered sin and death and him who holds the power of death, who is Satan. And then Hebrews would go on to say that we now have access to God. We can come straight to God through Jesus. Even in our sin, we can worship we can pray, we can spend time in God's word, we can, we can hear from God, we can come straight to God and we can have bold confidence to come straight to God because Jesus has made a way for us once and for all time. You see, God made a promise in Genesis 3 of a seed that would come and crush the snake crush his rebellion, crush the rebellion in our hearts and the shame that comes with it. But then finally, God responds like this in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So here's the final way that God responds. God covers our shame with new clothes. God gives Adam and Eve new clothes. They had tried to cover themselves in their nakedness with the leaves they were kind of putting together and sewing together. They, they tried to cover themselves, but that never works. And so God comes down, God makes a promise, and then God clothes them with new clothes. He covers them with new clothing. And later, that sacrificial system I was talking about, 
where the animal would die in your place for your sin to appease the wrath of God. Hebrews would tell us that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs would never permanently remove our sin. It was just a temporary fix to appease the wrath of God against our sin. And that ultimately, it was the seed who came, Jesus, who died in our place for our sin that once and for all, Hebrews would say, would appease the wrath of God against our sin. Once and for all time. And so if you've given your life to Jesus, your sin is forgiven past, present, and future because the seed that came became the sacrifice for sin and forever removed God's wrath off of us. That's why the angels said that you would name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin forever. And now watch this. The scripture says when you give your life to Jesus, you are clothed in Christ. You're clothed in him. You see, religion says, I gotta, I gotta fix myself. I gotta cover myself. I've gotta cover my sin. I've gotta fix my shame and, and, and cover it up. But the, but the gospel says, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't fix yourself. You can't cover yourself up. You must be clothed in Christ, in the righteousness of Christ, so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees you clothed in Christ and sees the righteousness of Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, the scripture says you've been clothed in Christ and your sin has been covered forever. And so this sacrificial system that would temporarily appease the wrath of God only was a foreshadow and would point to a seed who would come to forever remove your sin and to clothe you in righteousness. How many of you guys like getting new clothes at Christmas? Like you like, you like getting new clothes. How many of you are socks and underwear people? Like you like getting socks and underwear. Okay. There's very few. All right. Uh, what about like pants and, and shirts and stuff like that or sweatshirts, jackets, things like that. Okay. What about, how many of you like getting new shoes for Christmas? Maybe like shoes. Okay. You're my people. All right. So shoes are my love language. Many of you know that. And, uh, I get made fun of profusely for that, but, but, but shoes are my love language. I like getting new shoes. Well, did you know in, in revelation, how often it talks about these clothes that we're going to be wearing one day? Like that we've got these new clothes, like both now and, and one day, like forever, we're, we're, we've got these new clothes as a result of giving your life to Jesus. Watch what it says in Revelation about these clothes. This is Revelation 3, verse 5. John uh, is having this vision of heaven, and, 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 and he hears God speaking to him, and, and it says this in Revelation 3, verse 5. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life. I will announce before my father and angels that they are mine. Can you imagine that? God announcing to everyone in heaven and to the angels that you are his. That's gonna be us one day clothed in white. 
Revelation 7, verse 9, John says, After this, I saw this vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. One day, you're going to be a part of a crowd that's so great, no one can count. Worshiping Jesus and clothed in these new white robes. Revelation 7, verse 14, it says that they have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and so have made them white. In our sin, we're dirty, covered in spots of shame and sin. But when you give your life to Jesus, your, your, your robes, your clothes, they're, they're washed in the blood of Jesus and so are made white. Revelation 9, verse 6, then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean, waves, or, or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And the bride, and that's you and me if you're a follower of Jesus, we're called the bride of Christ, the church. And the bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat from the tree of life. You see, here's what Revelation is saying in the words of uh, kids today. You are going to be dripping in all white everything, all right? All white, everything. If you've given your life to Jesus, you have been clothed in white. You've been given new clothes to wear. And so here's my challenge. Here's the big idea for today. It's this, is that the snake wants you hiding in shame, but the seed, Jesus, invites you to come out. Come out, come out wherever you are. Come out of your hiding place so you're never the same. The snake wants you hiding in shame, but the seed invites you to come out so you're never the same. So how does this happen? How, how, how do we come out? What, what does this look like? Well, many of you know the story of Peter. Peter, the apostle, the disciple who said, told Jesus, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you, Jesus. I will always have your back. And Jesus tells Peter, Peter, thanks, man. Like, that's, that's awesome. That's great. But, man, man, before the rooster crows three times the next morning, you're going to deny me. Uh, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. Peter's, no, 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 no. Everyone else may do that, but I will never do that, Jesus. Well, sure enough, that night, in his fear, Peter denies Christ three times, right? And the next morning he hears the, the rooster crow. And some of the gospels say this, that after the rooster crowed a third time, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine that? I mean, picture that. R right after Peter is denied Christ, the rooster crows three times and you're caught in your sin and shame and the very person you've proclaimed your love for and you said you would never turn your back on looks right in your eyes. Can you imagine the, the hurt that Peter must have seen in the eyes of Jesus? Can, can you imagine the, the shame that Peter must 
have felt, and rightfully so. Peter drops to his knees and is sobbing in his shame. He couldn't believe what he had done. And you know, the Bible actually says that shame's a good thing. Our, our culture, our society today would, would try to tell you, hey, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Don't, don't, be, don't be ashamed of that. You, you got nothing to be ashamed of. That's just, that's, that's the way you are. Scripture says, no, we, we have plenty to be ashamed of. In fact, Paul would say in Romans, he would say this, godly sorrow leads to repentance. That it's godly sorrow, godly shame that actually leads to change. So Peter falls on his knees, he's weeping. Jesus would go to the cross and Peter has no opportunity, no chance to make it right, no chance to apologize to Jesus, no chance to try to fix it, make amends. Jesus goes to the cross and dies. Can you imagine being Peter living with that? Living with that shame that you denied Jesus, the one you left everything to follow? How could I do that? So Peter has no chance to, to make it right. Well, Jesus, the gospels say, is risen from the grave and he starts appearing to people and he appears to the disciples. And one of the times he appeared to the disciples, he appears to them on this shore and they're out in this boat a hundred yards away from shore and Peter's in the boat. And Jesus shows up on the shore and they, they realize it's Jesus. Now, if you're Peter in that boat, what are you thinking? Oh, oh gosh. The last moment, moment you, you had with Jesus, you were denying him and he was looking right at you. You saw the hurt in his eyes. Can you imagine the, the, the shame that Peter must have felt in this moment? It's Jesus. He's risen from the grave. This, this is the son of God. This is the promised Messiah. I denied him. I think most of us, and what most of us do in the midst of our sin and shame, we would have gone, gotten out of the boat and gone the other way. We would have run from Jesus. We would have hidden the boat. Oh, I, don't, I, don't want him, I don't want him to see me. I don't want to make eye contact. There's no telling what he'll do. Well, watch what happens next. John chapter 21, verse seven through eight says this. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord, uh, that's him. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work. They were fishing and jumped into the water and he headed to the shore. He's going to the shore. The other stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore for they were only about a hundred yards from the shore. Peter jumps out of the boat into the water a hundred yards from shore. Picture this. Can you picture this? He jumps out of the boat into the water. And he's running through the water a hundred yards from the shore to Jesus. He's running to Jesus. He's not running away from Jesus. He's running to Jesus. Now, what do you think happened when he got to the shore? You see, most of us think, because this is the way we view God. Well, surely when he got there, Jesus would have had to have come down on him. How could you do that, Peter? Well, what were you thinking, Peter? Mocking him. Oh, yeah, I'm, you're never going to deny me. You said you were never going to deny me. Well, look where we're at now, Peter. Look what you did. In the words of home alone, look what you did, you little jerk. Right? I mean, that's the way most of us view God. 
Surely Jesus would have scolded him and come down on him. But you know that's not what happens? Jesus tells Peter, hey, let's take a walk. And Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Wow. Yes, Lord, I, I know I messed up, but, but I love you. And Jesus asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Can you imagine Jesus questioning your love for him a second time? Do you love me, Peter? I mean, if that were me, I'm, I'm sobbing at this point. Yes, Jesus, you know that I messed up. I, I know that my, my actions did not back up what I've said. Yes, yes, I, I, I love you, Jesus. And then a third time, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I, I love you. And each time Jesus tells Peter, okay, if you love me, then go feed my sheep, go feed my lambs. Not much longer, Jesus is ascended back to heaven. And we're now in the book of Acts where we see the early church praying together, the Holy Spirit comes, they're, they're speaking and preaching and they can't stop speaking and, and, and preaching. And, and, and Peter becomes the very first New Testament gospel preacher. And in one day, Peter is preaching and 3,000 people come to know Jesus and begin to follow Jesus. You see, Peter's sin, his shame, wasn't the end of the story. And when he ran to Jesus, he didn't find Jesus. He didn't find a God that wanted to hold him down, that wanted to make him fix what he had done. He found a God that restored him and forgave him. You see, running to Jesus brings the restoration that you and I long for. In our shame, we want to run and hide and cover it up. What we're really seeking is for everything to be made right again. But it's in the running to Jesus that we find the restoration that our souls long for. Not running from him, it's in running to Jesus. And so your sin is not the end of the story. And I would challenge you this morning that whatever you've done, wherever you've been, and however you've tried to hide, would you come out and run to Jesus? Because watch this, I got, I got a math problem for you and then we're gonna be done, okay? This is a math equation, right? To help you remember this. Because it's Christ in you plus his church around you that will bring you the hope of change. You're not gonna experience the change and the restoration that you're longing for by running from Jesus and by running from his church. You're running from the very person and from the very body that God has given you to experience the change and the restoration that you're longing for. It's Christ in you plus his church around you will bring you the hope of change. So stop hiding. 
And in this moment, would you hear your heavenly Father saying to you, come out, come out, wherever you are. Let's pray. God, in this moment, would you remind us of what the angel told the shepherds? On that day that Christ was born, the angel said, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born. A savior, this, the seed, Jesus, who has been born and he will save you from your sin. He will save you from your shame. And so God, in this moment, as we worship, would you remind us and would you cry out to us just like you did to Adam and Eve that day? And would we, our hearts, hear you calling out for us? Come out, come out wherever you are. Stop hiding, stop trying to cover it up. Stop trying to blame other people. Just run to me, follow me, and I will fix you and heal you from the inside out. That's the promise of Christmas, that God became flesh and made his dwelling among us and invites us to follow him. And so God, in this moment, by your spirit, would you lead us to come out from our shame and run to Jesus? It's in his name we pray.